بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله الحمد لله وكفى وسلام على عباده الذين اصطفى أما بعد فأعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما رسالة الشريف اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد This is the 65th session uh, in our series Islam's Greatest Personalities on part 15 of the Seerah of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam In the last few sessions we discussed the prophecies mentioned regarding the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam's arrival in the previous scriptures, we looked at the Old Testament, the New Testament, and some of the other scriptures uh, of the other people. And uh, we said we will move on and continue with the seerah of the Prophet And today specifically, inshallah, we'll be looking at the receiving of revelation in the cave of Hira. But before we speak about Hira, it's important to understand um, the backdrop and to understand what happened preceding Hira. So the time in which this takes place, where the Prophet ﷺ receives prophethood, this is the 6th century. And specifically when we look at the 6th century, we find it was one of the darkest and most bleak periods in the world's history. It was a very strange time if you look at it from that perspective. Uh, for centuries there was a decline, there was a downfall, a degeneration uh, amongst mankind. And it just seemed that in this particular 6th century, there was a rush towards just um, living a very hedonistic life, just doing whatever you think of doing. And people were like in the pits and the depths of uh, decline in the 6th century. Um, we find that people had become totally heedless of their creator, forgot Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. People had lost total concern about the outcome, the consequence, what's going to happen in the afterlife. People had lost total connection or awareness of the fact that there is going to be an afterlife. So people weren't aware about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, totally heedless. They had forgotten that there is a life in the hereafter. They weren't concerned about their outcome, their consequence. There seemed no conscious effort to differentiate between right and wrong. So everything was just one, like do as you please. And the light and the guidance which would come normally and enlighten the path for the people. He had been such a long time since the last prophet who was Sayyiduna Isa alayhi salam. So it'd been more than 500 years and no prophet had come. So normally what would happen is the light would come, the prophet would come, people would become enlightened. So that light had totally diminished from the teachings of Isa alayhi salam. And the few individuals, handful of individuals who did possess some kind of light, some kind of guidance, they kept it to themselves. And when we study, we find that the few who desired to continue worshipping Allah, who knew the truth, who upheld the, the morals, the values, they chose to isolate themselves. So we find that there were people who went and lived in caves. They lived in solitude. They cut away from the people. They saw that this is not a life worth living. We can no longer associate in such a community, such a society. So the few individuals who did have the light, right, in, in this bleak period, what they chose to do, is they went and lived in caves, they, le they lived in and isolated themselves and they detached themselves from the common folk. And there were individuals who did have the light, who did have the knowledge, who did have the understanding. 
And they decided, okay, we're not going to join the people in the caves and isolate ourselves. What happened is they kind of became doormats for the kings and the rulers. And the rulers were then able to use them to make whatever they wanted halal, whatever they wanted haram, and find their way. And they, the, these particular so-called enlightened individuals then took advantage of the wealth and the position of the rules, rulers as well. So it was like a two-way kind of thing. They got their fatwas, okay, and they got their wealth. And this is what happened. So they were good people. It doesn't mean they weren't any good people at all. There were not many. They were good people. Either they went and isolated themselves, or here um, they took advantage of the wealth and the riches, and they just became kind of slaves to the kings and the rulers that were there at the time. Now, during this period, the world saw two great superpowers, and that was the Roman Empire, um, and the Persian Empire and we find that they had spread corruption on the earth so not only were they superpowers but the things that they were doing and people that were doing under their care it was spreading a lot of corruption throughout the earth mainly because again of living a hedonistic lifestyle a very lavish lifestyle of extravagance of immor immorality hedonism because of which what's happening is to continue funding this lifestyle you had to carry on finding how we're we going to source uh, the income to fund this kind of lifestyle. It had to come from somewhere. So this was having an impact on every single person within the community, within the society. He explains this very well in Hujjatullah al-Baliha. He says that the Romans and the Persians, after ruling the world for centuries, so it's been a long time that you had these superpowers, that they were in power, the Romans and the Persians. So many, many years had gone by and they were ruling the world and they had made this worldly life their objective their goal their objective uh, they had made the this worldly life they totally forsaken the hereafter and shaitan had totally overtaken them and they began to live this very materialistic lifestyle totally based on materialism no aspect of spirituality no awareness of the creator and no concern about where we are going. So this world became their be-all and end-all. That's all they were doing. It was all about the dunya, all about the world, all about how to live your life to the maximum, live your life to the best. It was all about this. Now, what happened was other communities in the world, so these were the two superpowers, other communities that were in the rest of the world, they would consider the Romans and the Persians to be very intelligent. They considered them to be very wise and they considered them to be people who are people of advancement, people who are moving with the times, very intelligent people. So selected individuals from different parts of the world who were intelligent, who had the internet, they would choose to then come and live amongst the Romans and the Persians. And the Romans and the Persians, they would use them to advance and to become better in what they were doing in terms of materialism innovative ideas creating new innovations to make life more easier life more fun to continue making this world their be all and end all and as a result of this what happens is there was a lot of material progress under both of these superpowers so the romans are making a lot of materialistic progress the persians are making a lot of materialistic progress and richness and wealth it became something divine meaning if somebody had money that was like a godly feature. Like we look at religion, that's how money was worshipped. Like a person of wealth, that everybody would strive for wealth. 
everybody. And anyone possessing less than 100,000 of their currency, they would get taunted. They would get told that you're a Mr. Nobody. You don't deserve to exist. You're not living your life. You're not worthy of living in this world. So it all became about materialism. Everything was surrounded about the dunya. And if you didn't have that kind of money, you'd be taunted. You'd be called a poor person. People would call you stingy. You'd, tell, you'd be told that you're not living with the times. And similarly, if you weren't living in like a palace-like structure, you know, we always see these people of the past, they made these huge dwellings, huge residences. So th this, is what life was all, this is what life was all about under these superpowers, building these really lavish residences, which looked like palaces. If you weren't living in one of them, then you'd get taunted. People would laugh and mock at you. So you'd, 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 you'd be expected to be having loads of wealth, loads of gold, living in a palace-like dwelling, and also they have these ornate baths, you always hear about the Roman baths. So even the baths, they have to be very luxurious, ornate baths. And it was like a public thing that you'd go out and you'd have a bath in there. Um, so ornate baths, scenic gardens. So they're all about, you know, having these gardens that they have to look really fancy. Um, the horse had to be really expensive, very, very fast. So it was all about dunya, materialism. And each person would have many slaves, many maids. And they'd have lavish table spread and banquets, so loads of different items of food. Um, and anyone that didn't have anything like this, what would happen? They'd get taunted, they'd get ridiculed. That you, you don't know how to live in the world. You're not with the times. This became part and parcel of the necessities of life. You know, we know to live in this world, right? We know that you can suffice on a simple meal. You can suffice on simple clothing. You can suffice on a simple dwelling as well. But there was so much pressure in those days to live up to these standards. This almost became the necessity of life, to live a very lavish kind of lifestyle, to be extremely wealthy and rich. No, it's not practical. Not everybody can have that kind of wealth, that kind of richness. So this expectation, this kind of culture, lavish culture, it brought with it many, many ills. Many problems were created within the society because of this expectation of living a very lavish lifestyle. We're seeing it today as well. If you think about it, we're seeing exactly this today as well. What happened then? It might be very different the way it looks, you can't tell. But in reality, it's the same thing. It's exactly, we're going through it. We're living through this, right? Where the rich people just get richer and richer and richer. Look at what, when COVID happened, the whole world shut down. It was a time when everyone was struggling. Collectively, we all struggled. But the elite and the people that are well, like they carried on becoming richer and richer. So when problems take place like this, now you need to continue funding. Uh, how, do you, how, how do you fund the lifestyle of the rich people? How, do you, how does it work? So when, when this happened in, this particular, in these societies, it created many problems. And these problems affected every single individual on every level. One of the main reasons is, there are many, many different evils and harms of this kind of culture. One of the main reasons, in order to fund this lavish lifestyle, there had to be a continuous stream of income. Now, where are you going to get more, generate more income from? You're already doing everything possible. You've got experts from the world that you've got who are in innovating new ideas, creating new things, right, to, to advance. Now, how do you get money out of people? What do you do? So besides stealing, well, it is a way of stealing. It's, 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 it's a sophisticated way of stealing.
not, not borrowing. Controlling, but how? Tax. Tax, whoever said it from here, is tax. Okay, and this is something that has happened from the beginning. Tax. Okay, so there were people who were already paying taxes. So now to increase a higher tax, you need to pay. And we're seeing this. We see this all the time. Like, we, you thought that, you know, all this funding that we've had, all this support that we've had, it has to come from somewhere. Okay, it's not going to come from the people have suggested, right, that the rich people should be taxed. Does that ever happen? No, it's going to come onto the common folk again and again. And this is what kept happening. So, the, the people that were already paying taxes, their taxes were increased. The farmers, for example, the simple-minded people who were doing their business day-to-day -day who weren't paying taxes, they'd introduce a new tax. And new taxes were introduced every so often. Okay, now there needs to be a new tax. Okay, a bottle tax, for example. Right, anybody making this, there's going to be a request on a new tax. Okay, and it sounds bizarre, but this is what happened. And this is what we're seeing now as well. So there were new taxes. Now what happens? When you're introducing new taxes, you're increasing the taxes. This is creating a lot of corruption. Why? Because people can't survive, let alone thriving. They can't even survive. To survive, to do He mentions here that now what happens is the tax collectors would go out. They've turned up. You were already struggling. You were in that situation because you were from amongst the elite. The ones who had lavish lifestyles. So you're working extra hard already. You didn't have enough in the first place. Now they're asking you to pay more. Obviously you can't pay. What happens now? They would send a whole army to fight you. You'd get imprisoned. You'd get beaten and humiliated in public. And your things and items would be stolen. People were treated like donkeys and animals dragged across the streets made to do hard work. And due to this constant pressure of the economy, economic pressure, and the paying of the taxes, the primary aim of these simple individuals, number one, would be to feed their families. Simple. That's like your first thing that you need to do. Feed yourself and your family. So the first thing is that they'd, they'd be spending all their money in feeding their family. writes that all of their money and the taxes, so besides paying the taxes, they, their struggle was just to feed their family. They didn't even have time or energy to think about building a life for themselves or try and become like the elite or the ones who were, the ones who were enjoying their lives. So he says, they didn't even have time or the energy or the money to enjoy their lives themselves. All their time was going and paying taxes, trying to feed their family and staying away from this humiliation. He says, let alone, uh, you know, they, they, they didn't have time and effort to enjoy the world, let alone plan in regards to what's going to happen with them in their hereafter and the enjoyment of the hereafter. So this is just a, a, a kind of a view gives us of these individuals of how far these people were from the truth and from the reality and how far they were from any kind of concern of the hereafter as well. Even from amongst those, those who wanted to try and become uh, more religious minded, more spiritual, yet closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. These pressures were such, there is a narration which is not authentic, uh, that many a times kufr leads to uh, poverty. Sorry, poverty leads to kufr. Poverty leads to kufr. And we see this in, 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 in the countries where people are struggling, where somebody comes along and presents to them 
some basic food items, some, some kind of water to drink, clean water, some clothing, some shelter, and very easily they kind of buy their iman and they purchase their iman as well. Uh, and, and, and you know, they convert them and we're seeing the missionaries doing the work. And this is why there is a need for society to work in, 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 in a way where everyone's supported. And the Islamic society, this is what it promotes. And we find this in the Quran, in the Sunnah, in the time of the Prophet just in the time of Omar ibn Abdulaziz, we find that people would go out with their zakat money, they wouldn't find anybody to give zakat to. Because the Islamic principles were applied in such a way that everyone's right was met. It wasn't that you know the rich people just become richer and richer and the poor people become poorer and poorer. Um, so the, this was the, 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 the Roman Empire, the Persian Empire, the big people in the world and who everybody looked up to. What about the Arabs? What was happening in Arabia? Because that were, that's where we need to get to. What was happening in Arabia, in the Arabian Peninsula at the time? The Arabs were kind of free spirits. Nobody ruled over them. Do you ever hear? that somebody came and tried taking over the Arabs, okay? That didn't happen. They were kind of free spirits. Um, they were very open-hearted, very generous people. We always hear this about the Arabs, and they've always been like that. From the time of Ibrahim salam, we find, okay, he, that's how he was, and we continue hearing this kind of uh, habit of the Arabs of being very open-hearted, very generous. They were known to be people of courage, and we might not hear about it often, when we speak about the Arabs and we speak about the dark ages and the days of jahili and ignorance, we always speak about doing tawaf naked and burying the daughters alive and you know, being very downtrodden in many different ways. However, the Arabs, they possessed a lot of noble qualities. And to understand that why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose the Arabs to receive the Nubuwa and the Prophet wasallam, best of the Prophets to come amongst the Arabs. So amongst them, they, we, we find that they possessed many noble qualities. The period in which Rasulullah was granted prophethood, we know it was like the darkest period in the history of the world. Even in Arabia as well, they were doing some really crazy things there. So they were in such a state that no one had any hope to lead such a nation. Nobody tried and attempted to even lead them. Uh, and no one tried to subjugate them. Uh, I'm talking about the Arabs here. Now, the Arabs, they were very, very far away from the teachings of their forefather, Sayyidina Ibrahim So they'd moved very far from them. There were certain elements, like they're doing tawaf and things like that, aqiqan, and a few things like this they were still doing. But from the actual teaching of Ibrahim they had moved very, very far. And if every tribe we know, we spoke about this in the beginning, there was an idol. And they would worship this idol. The idol meant everything to them. In every tribe, there was an idol. There was a different idol to everything. They prayed to the idol. They attached their hopes to the idol. They wished on the name of the idol. They sacrificed animals for the sake of the idol. And they would call out in the name of the idol. It was all about the idol. They would call out in the name of the idol. They would celebrate the idol. Um, and they would, um, you know, everything was about the idol. They want to travel and go somewhere, they first go and visit the idol. They come back from the journey, they go and visit the idol. The whole life was uh, surrounding the idol. And looting was common, stealing was common, killing and bloodshed was very common. Um, there was a lot of uh, deep-rooted pride in regards to their tribe and their family and where they were from. And if somebody said something about another person, then sometimes they would fight upon this 
for, for, for months and sometimes years upon something that was very, very petty. Um, a woman was looked down upon, she was treated like a shoe. Um, and we hear of occasions where people were so shameful that a daughter girl had been born that the girl was buried alive. This wasn't like, this wasn't something that was, that everybody was doing, okay? This was found and it was out of embarrassment that they didn't want to face a daughter, but it wasn't as if everybody was doing this because we find many people looked up to the girls, to the women, we find it in the Arabic poetry as well. So it was a practice that was done, but it's not like every single person was, like they had a baby girl and they went and they'd go and bury the daughter alive. And that we would have loads of incidents of that. So it was practiced, it was practiced, um, but it wasn't something that every single person was doing all the time. Uh, it was done during a period and there was a reason behind it. Um, so all of these things are there. Drinking and gambling was second nature. Um, they, they loved their drink, their alcohol and gambling. Now a time came when the kufar and shirk reached a certain stage. Uh, we can look at it as an ulcer. You know when you have an ulcer in the body or a cancer? May Allah protect us and grant us good health and afia. But you need, to, you need to cut it off, you need to remove it from the core, from the root. Otherwise what's going to happen? It's going to spread. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decided that on this occasion, this cancer of kufr, of shirk, this ulcer, okay, which has grown in its size, which has become very deep-rooted, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decided now to remove this from the root, to sever it totally from the root. And he decided to do this by sending the last prophet of all time. The world was in need of a revelation. The world was in need of a messenger. It was so desperately in need for a new life, for a new message to come down. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decided on this occasion to bless the world with a prophethood unlike any other prophethood from before. Prophets came and there was a whole chain of prophets that came from Adam alayhi salam till Sayyidina Isa alayhi salam. But this Nubuwa and this prophethood was going to be unlike anyone that preceded it. This message was going to be unlike any other one that came before it. This Nabi was going to be very different. He's not going to be limited for a people or for a time or for a community. This prophet is going to be global. This prophet and his message is going to be universal and it's going to be never outdated. It will continue to be relevant until the end of time. And this was by sending Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes reference to this in the Quran. Telling us how harsh, how severe, how deep-rooted the kufr and shirk was at that time. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah Al-Bayyina, لَمْ يَكُنِ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا مِنْ أَهْلِ الْكِتَابِ وَالْمُشْرِكِينَ مُنْفَكِّينَ حَتَّى تَأْتِيَهُمُ الْبَيِّنَ Allah says these kuffar, these mushrikeen, they weren't going to believe. There was no way that kufr and the shirk was so deep-rooted. It was because this clear message came to them of Muhammad Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in the way, in the shape, in the format that he came, with the power and the glory that he came with, with the guidance that he came with. This was, this is what changed them. Otherwise, they weren't going to change. They weren't going to turn away from their kufr and shirk because they were so engrossed in it. They, was, they went so far into idol worship nothing would have changed if you would have looked at them think nah, these people no no way these people will never change so allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on this occasion 
he brings about Rasulun min Allahi yatlu suhufan mutahara fiha kutubun qayyimah Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brings Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam the best of all prophets universal global message with the Quran that comes as a guide uh, uh, for the whole of mankind so on one side we find that the world was desperately in need uh, for guidance for a message so we see on one side the world desperately is in need uh, for this kind of message but on the other side we find that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala he mentions in the Quran on one side that the world was desperately in need of it at the same time Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is reminding you and me that sending Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was greatly needed the world was desperately was like thirsty for it but at the same time, Allah is saying and reminding us that this was a huge favor from Allah. لَقَدْ مَنَّ اللَّهُ عَلَى الْمُؤْمِنِينَ إِذْ بَعَثَ فِيهِمْ رَسُولًا مِنْ أَنفُسِهِمْ يَتْلُوْ عَلَيْهِمْ آيَاتِهِ وَيُزَكِّيهِمْ وَيُعَلِّمُهُمُ الْكِتَابَ وَالْحِكْمَةِ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is recounting the fable that he, he blessed the ummah with. That Allah blessed the ummah with the fable. Allah is reminding you of me that Allah favored you. Okay, the, you did, this is not something that you earned. The fact that Allah, think about it, right? Just think about this for a moment. Look at the situation of the world, right? This is a huge favor on us every single day, every single moment, whilst you and I are Muslims. This is Allah's huge favor upon us that He sent Muhammadur Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam because He was only Muhammadur Rasulullah being the best and the most amazing Prophet that came and was able to change these people. Otherwise, they were so engrossed in people for nothing would have worked for them. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us about His favor. That before, prior to this, okay, these people were in total deviation. They were totally lost. There was no hope for them whatsoever. So this is a huge favor of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, why did Allah choose and select the Arabs? To receive prophethood, meaning amongst the Arabs, Muhammad Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam came amongst the Arabs. First of all, the Quran says, Allahu a'lam Allah knows best where to place his message. People objected. You know, why was he given prophethood? So and so should have been given prophethood. Prophethood should have gone there. Why was he? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Allah knows best where he should place his message and nabuwa risala where it should go so first of all this is what allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says now we've spoken about the materialism we've spoken about the commercialism the progressive advancement people had made in terms of worldly uh, from a worldly aspect now in the world even we can understand this very well today wherever this progress and development uh, and innovation uh, from a materialistic point of view, generally that causes uh, a re regression in human development because humans become dysfunctional. We can see it now. There's so many robots, so much machinery, okay, um, to do things in, in comparison to before. We just go back to our own countries. Let's not go back so many years. Even here, we can understand 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Okay, now we're reliant on it. Let, let, okay, let's look at one simple example. Let's look at the TomTom, -tom, the GPS, right? So many of us, without that, we probably don't know the simple routes as well. Can you, can you see? This is a very, like a very simple example we can all relate to. 
right? You just get in, you, you put it on there. You don't have to think, no pressure. You just drive, like you do. You turn right, turn left, bear left. Okay, carry on straight. Okay, first exit. And that's it, you're there. Whereas before, we would have all had the A to Z in the car. Okay? We'll all be like, if you bring out an A to Z now, I think most of us wouldn't even know what to do. What's one of these? Right? <laughs> What's one of these? Right? And, and you know, you'd spend time, you'd, you'd plan your route beforehand. You'd look at it, you'd map it out. You'd try and think of, oh, look, we can take this scenic route from here as well. You can go from there as well. And, and you'd kind of plan it out before. And it'd be an enjoyable journey. You'd get lost, you'd pull that out again. You'd get to meet local people who'd come out, oh, give me the route, give me the directions to here. Can, can you see? This is something very simple we can relate to. Hamza's smiling because he doesn't know what I'm talking about. He's thinking that we're really all from back in the days. Um, no, this was very recent. These changes have happened right in front of us. Um, so, if you compare the Arabs to the rest of the Romans and the Persians, right? The Arabs didn't have any of this. They didn't have this kind of development. What, what development did they have? They had swords. So they're sharpening the swords. They had arrows, right? Little girls would make little drums out of know, rocks and pieces of wood. And they'd be tapping those. In terms of worldly development, you didn't find that in Arabia. There wasn't much happening there, right? So they were very simple. They were nomads, um, living in tents, very simple places, moving around from place to place. They had animals. So they were really good at horse riding and things like that. Um, but so they were working on their human qualities. And thus we find their human qualities were shining. It gave them an opportunity. Yes, we find that they were looting and all of that's there. And we keep speaking about that because that was there. But we forget sometimes that this gave the Arabs a chance to work on their human quality. They were already amazing in many aspects, right? When it came to their human qualities, their generosity, their courage, their, their, their loyalty, for example, these kind of their truthfulness, their honesty, these kind of things were found in the Arabs. And it gave them an opportunity to continue growing and building in these areas. So I remember there was um, a, a, um, a family who recently um, traveled to back where to their home country and they're from Syria. Now you know the state of Syria now. So they, before they were going to go, they were like really, really worried. They thought they're going to a war-torn country. You know, how is it going to be? How we're going to survive? It, it, will our children be okay? And so they took their son who was nine years old. And um, she was really, really worried before she traveled and she was telling everybody, please make dua, please make dua, please make dua. And, you know, she was getting really anxious before she traveled. She went there. When she came back, she had a whole different story altogether. And everyone said, well, how did it go? How did it go? And she was very impressed. She goes, it was nowhere like I expected. She goes, why? She goes, well, when I went there, uh, my nephew is also nine years old. I took my nine-year-old son. And I thought it's, you know, it's going to be really hard and difficult. But she goes, like, he was nine years old, but it was like he was 29. Like he was so mature, so responsible. And he could like, I, could, I would never imagine my nine-year-old here today living in the UK to do even 5% of what he was able to do and understand and the way he was in the community. He'd wake up early in the morning, get along with the household duties, go and do his studies, come back, help his siblings, and he gets that can welcome them, treat them, this and that. And, 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 and because they don't have much things, they don't have things, they don't have the technology, they don't have any of these kind of what we call advancement. 
they can continue focusing on human development, right, which we're losing out on. So this is what we can kind of understand that the Roman Empire, the Persian Empire, everybody living beneath it, they're making advancements, but they're making advancements from a materialistic point of view and regressing from human development when it comes to human development. The Arabs didn't have all these riches and this lavish kind of lifestyle. Because of their simplicity, they, their, 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 their humanistic kind of values, they worked on them much more. Sixth century, if we look at the sixth century, um, we find that progression was quite normal throughout other parts of the world as well. In India, um, in the sixth century, for example, you had the, uh, what's it called, the Ajanta Caves in, in Maharashtra. You've got the Ajanta Caves, where you've got these um, dedicated, um, these, these caves, and, and, and you've got these places that are dedicated to religious Buddhist um, gods. Um, and it was a place where people would go and visit and create and carve these kind of things and even people now go as well. This was a huge thing. So they, were, this, they saw this as an advancement. They were moving forward uh, and making these sculptures and the spread of the idols and the statues. Again, that was an art in itself where people would go and they would carve these different kind of idols and different kind of statues. In China, it was all about the Buddha and having these high massive temples, Buddhist temples, and you've seen how, how they are designed and everything. So again, they considered this as an advancement. So you've got India on one side, you've got China on the other side. In Egypt, they were practicing the mummification of the dead bodies. They would en en embalm them. And then you've got the Sphinx um, and, 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 the, uh, and the pyramids. Abul Haul, it's called Abul Haul. Abul Haul means father of dread. You know the Sphinx that they have? Uh, a human face and the lion body, the most famous one. So this was again, in those periods, this is the kind of things that they were moving forward towards. They were they thought they were advancing and witchcraft as well was very common at that time as well. In Greece, it was all about philosophy. You know, you hear about Greek philosophy. So this was their advancement uh, in, from a worldly perspective. And they were also busy building these luxurious dwellings, uh, palace type of houses. In Persia, the fire worshippers again didn't give up. They continued um, serving the cause of the fire and they again serving the upper class people. They would thrive again, very, very rich people. It was all about building an economy, bringing as much money as possible. Um, again, it was done at the cost of the common folk. So you've got all of these countries so-called thriving from a materialistic point of view. In contrast to this, if we study Arabia, the Arabian Peninsula in the 6th century, um, one thing we find, it was very far from the dangers of materialism. Still very simple people. Very, very simple people. There wasn't any innovation. There was no advancement when it comes to, from a materialistic point of view. So because of this, they were, they were able to continue working on their inner morals and their characteristics. From a materialist pers perspective, they were very simple. Um, they used their own skins and their skills and their talents. Um, you've seen how people in those days, nowadays, if you're watching any of the Turkish dramas, you'll see when they're out in the, in, in the fields and they want to track, okay, the tracks of the animals and the people, what do they do? Okay, they get down onto the ground. They're not using any maps, they're not using any compasses, they're not using GPS. Okay, down to the ground, you pick up the, the, the droppings of the animal. Okay, see how it is. Or you look at the, the, the foot. So, can you see they were very natural people. They, they, these are the skills. And, and the longer they were able to do this, they became better and better. They knew the genealogy of like animals, let alone human beings. 
Um, so these were things. So they were they were they were making swords and armor. Um, and because of this, they were protected to an extent from the evils of materialism and commercialism, which we're going through at the moment, due to which the praiseworthy traits that they had within them, they continued to develop. Um, they were, they, also, we find amongst the Arabs that one thing you didn't find in them, like hypocrisy, being cunning and sly and scheming. They were like, what you see is what you get kind of people. They were parades. They weren't, they weren't sly, they wouldn't go behind your back. So they were courageous, they were upfront, um, very resilient and tolerant. So resilient to pain, tolerant, they'd go through hard work. Um, they were very honest, they were very courageous, experts in horse riding, very simple people, very, very hard working. Perseverance was something you found amongst the Arabs. Loyalty was something you found amongst the Arabs. And if you think about all of these traits that I've mentioned, these are the traits you need to succeed in any area. If you want to become successful, doesn't matter how much materialism you have, how much money you have, how much wealth you have, how much advancements you make and how innovative you are, these are the real qualities that you need to succeed. And they had them within them. They had them and they were building upon them. So although they were polluted by kufr, they were polluted by shirk, the noble traits that they had, they were unbeatable. So on one side you've got kufr, you've got shirk. And for that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is sending you Rasulullah For these people who are deep rooted in the kufr and shirk, Allah dealt with that. Now imagine, right, people who have got really high praiseworthy qualities and for years and years and years they're developing them more and more. The only problem with them was the kufr and shirk. You take the kufr and shirk and then what happens now? Okay, these are the people that will shine. And these are the people that became Sahaba This is why there was such a huge revolution amongst these people and why they became the people that they became. That they had, they possessed these inner qualities uh, beforehand and the Iman only made them shine even further. So we find that when they accepted Iman, when the Kufr was taken away, the Shirk was taken away, these people became unbeatable. You could not bring a match. Muhammad Rasulullah. Walladina ma'ahu ashiddahu ala al-kuffar. Ruhama'u baylahum. Tarahum rukka'an. Sujjadan yabtabuna fadlam min Allahi wa ridwana. Seemahum fi wujuhihim min athar. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that Allah even spoke about these people, the companions of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, in the Torah and in the Injil as well. So not only, he's been speaking about the prophecies, not only was Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam mentioned, the people, the Arabs who speaking about, who he came to, who were, yes, they were involved in kufr and shirk to a very deep level. But once that was removed, we find, سِيْمَاهُمْ فِي بُجُهِمْ ذَلِكَ الْمَثَلُهُمْ فِي التَّوْرَاهِ so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala decided to send the final prophet to these people and when they understood the truth and they acted upon the guidance they would do absolutely anything to defend this mission to support this mission and did this become true we saw it didn't we we saw the sahaba they were willing to sacrifice absolutely anything for the cause of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. You see, haven't you heard stories of certain individuals? Okay, one Sahabi, he says, 
But a time was there when the most detestable person in my eye was Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. I hated him the most. What I wanted to do the most was to kill him, was to assassinate him. But when he put his hand in the hand of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam, right? So again, that quality of just being upfront that can work in both ways. Can you see? That can work in both ways. You can look at that as courage. You can look at that as just going and fulfilling your mission. The only problem there was the kufr and the shirk. As soon as that went away, what happened? The same Sahabi saying from that day onwards, the most beloved person to me was Muhammad Willing to do anything for the sake of Islam and for the sake of Rasulullah So this is the Arabs. On the one hand, you've got their cultural background, um, their moral background, uh, which we've spoken about. On the other hand, they did have another privilege as well. What was the other privilege? Where were they living? In the Haram, in Makkah al-Mukarramah. So this was another privilege that the Arabs had. So I think, why the final prophet amongst the Arabs? So this was another privilege that these people had. It was an amazing privilege that they were the custodians of the Holy Kaaba. And what does the Holy Kaaba resemble? What was it built for? The Holy Kaaba was to build as a symbol of pure Tawheed. I know they had many idols around it, but the same Kaaba, they revered the Kaaba. They honored the Kaaba. The whole idea of the Kaaba was, it was a symbol of pure Tawheed, oneness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If you think about the wording used in Ibrahim alayhi salam and Hanif and right, cutting away from everything, everything, and just turning towards one Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In That this first house of worship that was placed on planet Earth, the purpose of it was what? For the guidance of mankind. So they were living in the center of Tawheed, although it was became the center of they made it the center of shirk. But they were living in a place which was the center of Tawheed. That, that is what the Kaaba resembles. I mean, you can put whatever you want around it. It will always remain holy and sanctified in the sight of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this is another privilege that these people had. Almighty Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose this very land and he chose these people to be blessed. And this is where the final message of the final prophet is going to begin from. Prophethood is going to come over here in Makkatul Mukarramah, in the land of the Kaaba, amongst the Arabs, and ultimately the Prophet will rise from here and this message will go throughout the world as the Quran says, This place, okay, it's special. Why? Because the Kaaba is a center of guidance, not for the people of Makkah, not just for the people of the Arabs, for the Alameen, every single person, every single person all over the world is going to benefit from the guidance that illuminates and radiates from the Kaaba. In addition to this, according to the known world at that time, okay, the whole world hadn't been discovered, but at that time, another thing is, Arabia was kind of at the center of the world because of the trade journeys. So everybody was crossing through there. So they had another advantage. So one advantage is their previous qualities, which were very noble. The second is that they were custodians of the Kaaba, which is the center of Tawheed. And number three, uh, from a geographical point of view, they were kind of at the center of the known world at that time. 
because everybody who came through for trade and for business, they had to cross through. So from Asia Major, anybody who came from there, they would cross through Arabia. Europe, people would be crossing through Arabia. And Africa, people would be crossing through Arabia. So they had another advantage there as well. So it becomes the center of guidance. And it has been the system of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala intends to take the work of guiding mankind through a particular individual, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allows that individual to first of all ponder and reflect in solitude. This is the system of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Look at the previous Anbiya alayhi salatu wasalam and we find this as well. So which is the place which was selected and chosen for this? It was none other than the cave of Hira. The cave of Hira in Mecca al Mukarramah was a place which was blessed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, to be that area of prophetic solitude where the Prophet وسلم, prior to him starting his mission, he is going to be spending considerable amount of time. Where is the cave of Hira? Just to understand. So from Mecca al Mukarramah, it's in the northeast direction and it's at a distance of five kilometers from the Haram. Five kilometers from the Haram. It's actually on the peak of a mountain. The mountain is called Jabal Al-Nur, the mountain of light. At the top of this mountain, there's a small opening. It's not big, it's not a huge cave. So when we think of a cave and we think of a massive cave, no. It's a very small opening uh, at the top of this cave. And this is what we call Hira. Some of the scholars of Sira mention that spending time in solitude in Hira was initiated by the grandfather of the Prophet وسلم, Abdul Muttalib. So he would actually go there. Some have even said that he would actually go there during Ramadan. So in the ninth month. So he would go there and spend that ninth month in solitude, away from the people and in reflection. Any poor people that would be passing by the area, he would feed them. He was known to be generous. And there were other people not many, but there were other people from the Quraysh that were really impressed by this practice of Abdul Muttalib and some of them copied him as well. So they would go out away from the people from time to time and remain in solitude. Amongst these people, one of them known to do this was Waraqa bin Nawfal. We know Waraqa bin Nawfal is. Who is Waraqa bin Nawfal? The cousin of Khadija radiallahu anha and he adopted Christianity. He knew how to read and write Hebrew as well and he was a master of the scriptures. Um, so he would also go and spend time in solitude uh, on a regular basis. Now Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa when we study his life, we find one thing regarding him. He sallallahu alayhi wa was very um, sensitive, very sensitive person. And the Sahaba radiallahu anhu would be able to tell just by his face, by his complexion, uh, by the way they saw him conduct himself, that he sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is happy, he's unhappy, he seems to be angered by something, he seems to be in pain. This was something that you could see, he was very sensitive as a person. Now imagine Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam detested and hated the idols from, from the early days. And he was now having to live amongst people that were committing kufr and shirk openly every single day. And this is not easy for somebody who hates it, who detests it. 
to see this every single day. And then obviously the, the ills in society of looting, of bloodshed and things like this, to see that on a daily basis the moral decline in the people, this would cause the Prophet a lot of inner pain. And there's only so long you can keep it inside you, right? There's only so long that you can keep it inside you without telling anybody, without speaking to anybody. This constant worry, this constant pain, this constant concern for the people, it's not as if he wanted to run away from the people. It's not as if he was aloof from the people. He was a very, he was a people's person. You know, sometimes this can be looked at as shirking off responsibility, that you've gone off on your own somewhere. This wasn't like that. This was out of pure concern. The Prophet wanted to put things right. He knew that this isn't right. This isn't the right way. And he also knew that the moral decline he could see. He wanted, he was, he was passionate for change in the people. But how do you go about it when it's become so widespread? That there's idols all over the place, kufr, shirk all over the place, immoral decline everywhere. So this led the Prophet to seclusion until a time came where he just preferred being alone. And Ummul Mu'mineen, mother of the believers, Sayyida Aisha radiallahu anha, in the hadith of Sahih Bukhari, Sahih Muslim, the Prophet وسلم, it says regarding him, she says, A time came where uh, just being alone was made beloved to him. He just liked spending time alone. So he would go, leave his home. He would go climb the mountain of Jabal An-Nur and go in the cave of Hira and he would just spend time there alone. And he would do tahannuf in there. Why is he, what, what did he do? People ask like, what did he do once he was in the cave? Well, the hadith says he would do tahannuf. Imam Bukhari says tahannuf is ta'abud, meaning ibadah. Well, how did he worship? What kind of worship did he do? It's a question that arises in the mind of Muslims. For many, many nights, consecutive nights. It wasn't just one or two days. Sometimes he would be gone for days on end. And Khadija would prepare some food and he would take it and he would be gone for days and for nights, the hadith mentions. So he began, he also began spending the entire month of Ramadan in Hira. In the vicinity, if there were any poor people, he would share his food with them as well. And when he would come back to home, prior to entering his house, he would make the tawaf of the Kaaba, and then he would enter into his home. And then he would go again. Now, regarding the worship in the cave of Hira, although the Prophet ﷺ detested idol worship and all other forms of kufr that were rife, there wasn't really, really an example at that time uh, of a method of worship that he could have seen, okay, I'm going to worship like this. There wasn't anything like that. There was no one like that. He could have thought, okay, that, that looks kind of good. I'm going to do that. Because around him, everybody was engaged in kufr, in shirk, in idol worship. Um, so there was nothing that he would, no one can say that he went into the cave and he replicated someone else or something else that he saw. So no one really knows the exact manner in how Rasulullah worshipped Allah in the cave of Hira. Nobody will be able to tell you this. That what did, what did he do exactly? Nobody knows. How did he, we know he worshipped Allah. How did he do it? Nobody knows. It's not been mentioned. The scholars of Hadith have made an attempt to kind of explain to us that what are the possibilities? Again, these are possibilities. And this is not final. We don't know exactly. 
So some scholars said that he worshipped in accordance with the Sharia of Musa alayhi salam. Musa alayhi Last week we spoke about the similarities between the Sharia of Musa alayhi salam and the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So some say maybe he worshipped in accordance to that Sharia. He worshipped Allah in the cave for that period of time in accordance to that. Others say no, he did it in accordance to the Sharia of Isa alayhi salam because that was the Sharia at the time. Others say no, he did it in the way of Nuh alayhi salam because Nuh alayhi salam is also one of the great Rasul of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who came with the Sharia. Number four, others say no, he worshipped Allah in accordance to the manhaj, the methodology of Sayyiduna Ibrahim alayhi salam. Hafiz ibn Muhaqqir al-Asqalani rahmatullahi, the greatest commentator of Sahih al-Bukhari in Fatulbari, he mentions that this seems the most correct, that he worshipped Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, according to the way of Ibrahim alayhi salam. This is the most plausible explanation. Why? Because he says, well, tawaf of the Kaaba was from the middle of Ibrahim alayhi salam. And the word, fayatahannathu, he says, fayatahannathu, it means in reality, tahannuth, with a tha at the end, it actually means fayatahannafu, with a fa at the end. And it's very common amongst the Arabs, he says, to change the, uh, the, change the fa to a tha. So, tahannuth and tahannuth. And tahannuth comes from the word, what does it sound like? Hanuntha, Hanafi, okay? So, he would worship according to the Hanafiya. Not, not, not the Hanafiya, not as Hanafiya. Okay, as opposed to the Shafiya, I know. Hanafiya meaning Hanif, the way of Ibrahim alayhi salam. The way Ibrahim alayhi salam, uh, he would worship uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says regarding Ibrahim alayhi salam. Thumma awhayna ilayk anittabi' millata Ibrahima Hanifa. Okay, so. He says that most probably he worshipped in the way of Ibrahim alayhi salam and Ibn Hisham was actually in his book when he mentions the seerah when he mentions this particular narration he actually mentions the word فَيَتَحَنَّفُ uh, instead of تَحَنُّفُ he actually mentioned that he would worship Allah in the way of Ibrahim alayhi salam uh, Imam Zurqari rahmatullahi mentions that تَحَنُّفُ means to stay away from sin and we know from the sunnah the Prophet has told us that the greatest act of ibadah is abstinence. We know performing tahajjud, fasting, giving charity, making dua, serving other people, these are great acts of ibadah. But one of the greatest acts of ibadah is to abstain from haram and sin. You'll become a'mud and you'll become the greatest worshiper. You want to become the greatest worshiper? Stay away from sins. Because that in itself is a huge act of worship. So Imam Zulqari mentions that the fact that he was staying away from the evils of society, that in itself was ta'abud. That in itself is ta'abud. It's a great ibadah. In this day and age, in this day and age, you look at the Ashab al-Qahf, the three youngsters, right? what did they do? They were living in a society which was again full of kufr and shit. What did they do? They went into a cave and went to sleep. That is a huge ibadah. Nowadays, to go to sleep is an ibadah. Why? Because that is when people get up to no good. If you get a habit of going to sleep early, you, Allah will protect you from so many of the sins. You'll become a'bud al-nas. You'll become one of the greatest worshippers. Because it's simple. You just, you, just you, you, you go to sleep and that's it. So over here, 
Imam Zulqani rahmatullahi says, well, we don't know exactly how he worshipped, but even if he just went there and stayed alone, that in itself is abstinent from sins, staying away from the sins that are happening in the community. That in itself is a huge act of ibadah. So based on the verse of the Quran, Hafiz ibn Hajar Asqalani comes to this conclusion, based on the verse of the Quran, it seems that Ibrahimi way was the way he followed because well, after he comes out from the cave, he's granted Prophet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent him wahi until and the others say that his ibadah consisted of tadabbur and tafakkur, pondering and reflection upon the greatness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala about his the creation of the world. رَبَّنَا مَا خَلَقْتُ هَذَا بَاطِلًا سُبْحَانَكَ فَقِنَا عَذَابَ النَّارِ And this is something Ibrahim Alayhis Ka'am did as well. Didn't he do this? فَلَمَّا جَنَّ عَلَيْهِ الْلَيْلِ رَآ كَوْكَبَ Ibrahim Alayhis Ka'am saw the star and said, this is my Lord. But when it disappeared, he said, my Lord doesn't disappear. He saw the moon. And when the moon disappeared, he said, this is not my Lord. He saw the sun. So, scholars have mentioned that this is also the way of Ibrahim Alayhis Salaam when he went in the cave and he pondered and he reflected upon the makhluk and the creation of Allah, coming to this conclusion that there must be a creator behind them and pondering upon these uh, creations of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So inshallah we will stop here and continue in the next session where just prior to prophethood, the Prophet will tell us that before I receive prophethood, before إِنِّي لَأَعْرِفُ حَجَرًا بِمَكَّةٍ كَانَ يُسَلِّمُ عَلَيَّ قَبْلَ أَنْ أُبْعَثُ إِنِّي لَأَعْرِفُهُ الْآنِ He says, even before I was granted prophethood, I know certain stones and certain trees in Makkatul Mukarramah. When I would pass by, they would say to me, As-salamu alayka, As-salamu alayka, Ya Rasulullah. As-salamu alayka, Ya Rasulullah. They would address me, and he says, I still know them. And this is before I became a prophet. He was being prepared. And we'll speak about this more, inshallah, in the next week's session. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us the true love of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Wa akhiru da'wana. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.